Hello, I'm Helena Cronin, and I'm a co-director of the Centre for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science here at LSE. A big welcome to all of you, and also a very warm welcome indeed to our speaker, Professor Sebastian Sung. Sebastian, it's a great pleasure to have you here. According to the Astronomer Royal, Sir Martin Rees, his area of science, which deals uh, merely with the physics of the entire cosmos, uh, is the very easy stuff. Science gets really hard, he says, when it deals with living things. Why? Because they're the most complex objects in the, or in the known universe. And the most complex of all is uh, the human brain. So, who on earth would give up a high-flying career in theoretical physics BA and a PhD from Harvard, postdoctoral work, and a good, brilliant research job to take on the really complex stuff, neuroscience and the human brain. Who on earth would do that? Answer, Sebastian, who is uh, now... Are you saying, are you saying I'm foolish? Is that... Uh... <laughs> rising to the challenge. <laughs> the Astronomer Royal's not done it. <laughs> okay. Uh, Sebastian's now at, LS, at MIT and at the cutting edge of connectonomics, that's the intricate wiring of the brain. It's also literally cutting edge. The technology depends on the knife as much as the microscope, slicing up brain tissue and building up the resulting images to get a three-dimensional structure. So there's the knife and the microscope, and he also harnesses today's unprecedented and impressive computing power. Then, finally, he has to cope with those vast quantities of data that are generated. And for that, Sebastian musters the most complex technology of all, human brains. Volunteers who are mobilized online to map the tangles of wiring. Perhaps you could recruit the Astronomer Royal to get down to some really hard work and he could learn what it's like. About our program for this evening, the Twitter hashtag is hash LSE connectome and the event is being recorded and as long as there are no technical difficulties, a podcast will soon be available online. Sebastian's going to talk for up to 45 minutes at the very most, probably somewhat less, and then questions from you for the rest of the time. That'll be about 40 minutes or so, and we'll finish by 8 p.m. After that, Sebastian will sign copies of his new book, Connectome, How the Brain's Wiring Makes Us Who We Are. And that's also the title of his lecture, which, Sebastian, I now invite you to deliver. Helena, that was the most elegant description I've ever heard of my own research. I, I'm, I'm actually really impressed. That was beautiful. I am honored to be at the London School of Economics. If my mother could only see me now, <laughs> she would be delighted. Actually, how many of you here are from the school? Is there anyone here? Oh, quite a few. So since I'm here at the London School, I feel compelled to tell a story about Friedrich Hayek, 
who was a, an Austrian economist who spent most of his career at this school, as far as I understand it. Isn't that right? Yes. Friedrich Hayek. And Hayek is, is interesting for several reasons. One is that he was also an amateur neuroscientist. In addition to his writings on economics, he published a book which gave his theory of how the brain works. So he was someone who, who combined uh, these two areas. And there's also another interesting story about Hayek, which is that in 1974, he shared the Nobel Prize with Gunnar Myrdal. And these two uh, economists were diametrically opposed in their beliefs. And so that gave rise to the quip that economics is the only field in which you can share a Nobel Prize for saying opposite things. <laughs> and indeed, uh, I think afterwards, Myrdal wrote a paper calling for the abolition of the Nobel Prize in economics, saying that it wasn't a hard science like physics or chemistry. Maybe it didn't really deserve to be included in the same, uh, uh, the same kind of uh, prize uh, series. So I mentioned this not to ridicule economists, because, of course, they're too obvious and easy a target. <laughs> I rather want to express my sympathy because they call economics the dismal science and there's been many times in my career wh where I felt that, that uh, neuroscience is more dismal because you know economists are up against this incredible challenge which is how to describe an entire society of people huge numbers of people interacting diversity of people diversity of behaviors and trying to describe them by some simple set of equations. And uh, theoretical neuroscientists like me uh, have done that for a long time. So we also have a history in neuroscience. In 1906, two neuroscientists, Santiago Ramoni Cajal and Camila Golgi, shared the Nobel Prize, the first Nobel Prize in neuroscience. Well, it's for physiology and medicine, but the first awarded for research in, uh, in neuroscience. And during the banquet, or whenever they give their speeches, I've never been to the Nobel ceremony, so I don't know, but they give their Nobel speeches, they actually attacked each other. Instead of celebrating, instead of drinking champagne and so on, they bitterly attacked each other because they were indeed saying opposing things. So neuroscience shares a lot in common with economics. It was through their efforts that scientists learned that the brain contains this vast network of special cells called neurons. But there was a disagreement. Golgi thought that the neurons, you know, neurons look like trees, so they have long branches. And uh, Golgi thought that the branches actually fused together so that the brain's neurons were actually one supercell that was continuous. And Cajal believed that they were separate, that uh, those branches came close to each other and touched but they didn't actually fuse. And it turned out that uh, Cajal was right most of the time. Most of the time, neurons uh, actually make contact through chemical synapses, and I'll show you that, and they don't actually fuse. So I tell you this story because, really, the only thing that really settled this debate was the ability to see better. And one of the chapters of my book is Seeing is Believing, that our difficulties in understanding the brain have come because we can't see clearly what's going on inside such a complex device. 
Okay, so that brings me to the word connectome. So, first of all, how many of you had heard of the word connectome before this lecture? All right, a reasonable number. And I want to congratulate you because you are in the intellectual avant-garde. <laughs> and I want to congratulate the rest of you because you're not far behind. <laughs> Indeed, after today, you'll be able to go to cocktail parties and impress your friends and say, have you heard of this new word, connectome? Right? And you'll be able to tell them what it means because I think it's an exciting time in neuroscience. And really, this book is about is trying to explain to the public why we're excited in neuroscience. There's tremendous hunger in the public to learn about, I mean, look at this audience, right? And I go everywhere I go, people show up, sometimes they're kind of beating the doors down, worried about getting a seat, because they want to hear what's going on. They know that something is going on, but actually, it's very difficult for a non-specialist to learn what's really going on. What's written about in the books and in the magazines and so on really doesn't give an accurate portrayal of what neuroscientists really do. And so my, my goal here is to share some of, of what's really happening, why it is, what's happening at the frontiers. And to do that, I have to also give you a little bit of history. And so let's remember that the oldest method of studying the brain is to divide it into a small set of regions, each of which is large enough to be seen by the naked eye, at least in a dead brain, when, when the brain is taken out of the skull. So we divide the brain into regions, and we assign a function to each region. This is where language is, uh, is processed. This is where vision happens, et cetera, et cetera. And we know that victims of stroke, we can interpret their symptoms because a particular area of the brain with some function has been damaged. And all those pictures you see in the newspapers, those brain scans, Right? Area, this area on the left side of the brain lights up when the subject is thinking about such and such. You've seen all those things. This is remarkable because it tells us where to look in the brain if we want to understand language or vision or hearing. But I want to emphasize that it's not enough. It's only the beginning. If we want to understand how a brain region actually works, how does it carry out that function? How does its ability to carry out that function improve when we learn something? And why does a brain region fail to work well when we have a mental disorder? Those questions can never be answered just by looking at regions. We have to look deeper. We have to look with higher resolution at the substructure of regions. And in fact, my conviction is that we have to examine neurons, those cells that Golgi and Cajal discovered uh, over a hundred years ago. And that's an enormous task because there might be a hundred brain regions, depending on how you count, but there's a hundred billion neurons. So instantly we're faced with the kind of complexity that Helena talked about. But the good news is that our technologies are now starting to become up to the task of dealing with that complexity. And we need that. Imagine a caveman presented, say, with a, a Swiss mechanical watch, the old-style watch, and you ask the caveman, how does this watch work? That caveman wouldn't even have the tools to disassemble it. They could throw it on the ground. Oh, it stopped working. That's kind of the level that we're at with neuroscience. We need much more sophisticated tools if we're going to figure out how it really works.
So what are the kinds of measurements that neuroscientists make? Well, you all know that neuroscientists measure activity, the signals that neurons pass around inside this network. We also have to study the connections. We need to map exactly how they're connected into a network. That's the, that's the connectome. And we also have to, to sequence the genes, find out what genes, how, what genes are involved in controlling brain functions and so on. So genes, connections, and activity. But the technologies for observing connections have lagged behind. That's a, that's a discipline known as neuroanatomy. Neuroanatomy has been the ugly stepchild of neuroscience for the past 20 years, 20, 30 years. But now the technological revolution is happening uh, in neuroanatomy too. All right, so the connectome. Only one connectome is known in its entirety, that of this tiny worm. It's one millimeter long. C. elegans, a favorite object of study by biologists. And it's kind of cute. No? Depending on, uh, well, I guess that's in the eye of the beholder. Uh, but it's certainly uh, got a manageable nervous system because that's its connectome. Can we actually, is there any way to dim the front lights? No? All right. Help is on the way. So here's the connectome. So what does this remind you of? The web. The web. Yes, that we have the, the people who are stuck on the internet all the time. So it's like a Rorschach test, right? So what else does it remind you of? Australia. Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Is he from down under? I mean, this is uh, great, great. What else? An airline map. Someone who's been traveling too much. <laughs> I've got that problem too. So indeed, this remind maybe it's an airline map of Qantas Airlines. <laughs> so uh, if you take one of those maps you find in the back pages of in-flight magazines and replace every city by a neuron and every flight between cities by a connection, then you get something that looks kind of like this worm connectome. Now your connectome is far more complicated because as I mentioned before, it's the equivalent of 100 billion cities and thousands of flights per city. So it would never fit on this slide. It would never even fit in an encyclopedia, one of those archaic things that we used to look at. It's a huge amount of information. In fact, there's a million times more connections than your, your connectome contains a million times more connections than your genome has letters. What does all that information mean? Well, there are a lot of theories, and we've never been able to test them because we haven't been able to map connectomes. This took over a dozen years of labor by a team of, of uh, scientists in uh, the UK in the 1970s and 80s. Over a dozen years of effort just to map this out. And imagine uh, then it was so traumatic that nobody wanted to do it again. <laughs> so this field kind of... Uh, fell into disfavor, but only recently have the technology become advanced enough that we now start to have these foolish dreams of mapping out the nervous systems of, of animals more like ourselves, say mice, our cousins who are closer, mice, uh, birds, and even our own brains ultimately. But why should we do it? Well, I'll give you two simple reasons. So one of them is that 
so this, this is sometimes called a wiring diagram for the brain, kind of drawing on a metaphor with an electronic device. But that is a misleading metaphor because the wiring of an electronic device never changes. Whereas your connectome actually does change over time, even when you're an adult. Your experiences are thought to modify the connections inside your brain, effectively changing your wiring diagram. And it's believed that's how you learn something new. That's how you store new memories. That your memories right now, the ones that you know, are actually encoded in your unique pattern of connections. And that's why I coined this phrase. Some of you may have seen my TED talk. I coined this phrase, uh, you are your connectome. Right? Because memories are very special, idiosyncratic aspect of you. They're what make you you. And it may be that those memories are encoded in your connectome, but we need to find connectomes to test that theory. Now, the other influence on connectomes is the genes, right? Everyone knows or everyone, everyone has heard this idea that genes have influence on minds. But in the 20th century, people got into big fights about nature versus nurture. Some people said that the mind is so plastic that it's not under the constraints of the genes, unlike any other part of the, any other part of, any other aspects of our cells. But the evidence is mounted, and now nobody can deny the idea that genes influence minds. The question is exactly how. Think about the processes of brain development. Your brain had to wire itself up to get to be the way that it is, and your genes were involved in all those steps. 100 billion neurons had to be born. They migrated to their proper positions in the brain in a complicated dance. They extended branches, right? Became tree-like objects. Those branches intertwined and synapses got formed to make the connections. And every single one of those processes is guided by your genes. So it's no wonder that genes have influences on minds. And I would say that that's why the connectome is important because that's where nature meets nurture. We have to move beyond philosophical debate over nature and nurture and know exactly how it is that nurture influences the connectome. How is it that genes shape the connectome? We need scientific answers, not polemics. Okay, so I hope that I've motivated this somewhat, and now I'll go into the problem of what Helena talked about, which is how do we actually do it? Maybe you're convinced we should find connectomes. How can we go about it? This is uh, a piece of a mouse brain which is embedded in an extremely hard plastic resin. It reminds me of that movie Jurassic Park, right? So you have an insect embedded in amber. Uh, so you may have seen pictures like that before. Um, here we have a piece of brain that's been preserved. And it will last actually that way for a long period of time. But we don't let it last. We stick it into a deli slicer, a very high-tech deli slicer. This was invented by a, a man named Ken Hayworth, who was a former NASA engineer. He works in the laboratory of Jeff Lichtman at Harvard University. And it's fitted with the uh, anatomically sharp knife, the diamond knife, which is on the edge of that blue tub. And the piece of brain slides back and forth, back and forth, and slices come off that diamond knife. And they're automatically collected on that white tape. So there's a conveyor belt that's rolling 
and picks up the slices. So you end up with a kind of movie, every frame of which is a slice of brain. And those slices are a thousand times thinner than a hair, up, up, uh, as, small, as, as thin as 30 nanometers. And now you can see, you can take these strips of tape and cut them up and mount them on a silicon wafer and image them in an electron microscope, the world's keenest microscope. And now we're zooming in by a factor of 100,000 times to get to the resolution that we need to see the brain's wiring. But we don't need just one image, we need a whole series of images, images of many slices. And we stack them together to make a three-dimensional image. And to trace one wire through there, we color in the cross-sections of a dendrite of a neuron, slice after slice, and keep on doing that all the way through. And you can see that just as roses have thorns, neurons have thorns too. And the green neuron touches the red neuron in two locations. Those are the famous synapses, which you may have heard about, but here they are in reality. And we can verify these are synapses by looking inside the green neuron. You'll see little circles. Those are called vesicles, and they contain molecules of neurotransmitters, which again, you've heard about, say, glutamate, dopamine, and so on. So that's what they really are. And when the green neuron wants to send a message to the red neuron, it spits out the contents of one of those vesicles, and the red neuron senses that. So it's kind of shocking, if you pause to think about it, that as you're thinking about the most refined things, your neurons are spitting on each other. <laughs> you know, we're different in a very basic way from computers, which have all this electricity. We have these secretions, and in fact, the um, French philosopher Cabanas said that as the liver secretes bile, the brain secretes thoughts. He turned out to be right. I guess a more refined metaphor would be that they, they exude perfume, and it's sensed by the other neurons, but it just depends on how poetic you want to be. All right, so I've, I've shown you that we can trace the wires find the synapses, that means we can find the wiring diagram. We can find the connectome. So why aren't we done? Well, imagine we have this block. It's not enough just to look at those two branches. We have to trace all of them. And you can think about this as a, as a three-dimensional coloring book. We have to color in everything. And there's a lot of objects in there once you've done coloring. You can see that there's a lot of complexity. It's just packed in there. And here's the embarrassing confession, which is that a postdoc named Daniel Berger in my laboratory, he colored in every single one of those cross-sections by hand. And it took him 250 hours of work. And Daniel is really good at this. He was much faster than you are, and he can, his endurance is far surpasses you and me. He is really incredible, and still, it took him 250 hours uh, to do this. All right, so what's worse, that's pretty small compared to a single neuron. And, well, that's small compared to a brain, 
And you know, that's just a mouse brain. <laughs> and so sometimes people tell me, Professor, how come you haven't figured it out yet? And I say, look, it's not my fault. It's bad in there. It's really complicated. And the first time I saw these images was the first time I realized that it's really complicated. You hear, oh, co most complex object in the universe, etc. You hear these things, but until you see it, you don't really understand why it's so complex. The material structure is indeed extremely complex. Okay, so as you can see, the image analysis problem is very difficult. We've used the images that Daniel uh, traced. Daniel colored them in. We've used them as a training set for machine learning. So you, some of you may know that the most favored way of making artificial intelligence today is to make a computer learn to emulate a human expert. And so Daniel's tracings are the human expertise. And in fact, one of my former students, Serena Taraga, is here in the audience. Uh, he developed uh, the machine learning algorithms that we use to, to make computers smart enough to do this task automatically. But not completely automatically, because computers still make mistakes. Computers are not as smart as people. You know, you'll see that robots in real life aren't anywhere as smart as robots in the movies, including in their ability to see. So what can we do about this? We still need human intelligence as well as artificial intelligence. And so, Recently, my lab created this website called iWire.org. So it's called iWire, like E-Y-E Wire. And uh, it's because this image data set, which was provided by our collaborators in Germany in Winfred Denk's laboratory, this image data set is from the retina of a mouse, the sheet of neural tissue at the back of the eye. So you can go to this website, and you can learn about the retina. There's some educational material. But in addition, you can play a game And here it is. You can see there's eight players currently online. You don't need any specialized scientific training to do this. Uh, there's a, right here, is one of these neurons of the retina, which is currently being traced out by our players. And you may be able to see green boxes, green cubes. Those are the locations of players inside this huge data set. Each of those is a little piece of the image. Can, is it, are they visible, the green boxes? All right. Uh, and so you can imagine them as little people. They're climbing over this tree, and they're extending its branches. And on the right-hand side, you can see a leaderboard. Every time you finish one task, which is analyzing, uh, tracing a branch through one of those small cubes, uh, you get some points. And we keep track of that on the leaderboard. Can you see blue, blue cubes? No? All right. The lights here are a little too strong. OK, here's the game itself. Very simple. There's a cube on the left, and there's a slice from that cube on the right. And the gray plane in the, in the left cube tells us the height of the slice inside the cube. And we can move up and down. 
inside this little piece of the retina. And the artificial intelligence, the computer, has colored in part of a neural branch, part of a wire in blue. You can see that both in the 3D image and in the 2D slice. But you can also see that the AI has been tentative. It stopped where it wasn't sure. And so your, your job here is to guide the AI by clicking. Just tell it to keep on coloring. And that's what it does. And you can see that the rest of the, of the wire has been traced. So you don't have to color everything painstakingly. You just have to provide some guidance to the computer. It's a human-machine interaction that ends up tracing out the wires of the retina. This is a tutorial task. So in the beginning, you are training to be an amateur neuroanatomist. A modern-day kahal from the comfort of your living room. And if you click in the wrong location, you're being compared with an expert who's already done this task, and you get red feedback to tell you that you've made an error. You do a sequence of 15 instructional tasks, which are harder and harder. It becomes more difficult to find the missing branch. And when you're done, you graduate. Then you start doing tasks that no expert has done, and you're contributing to neuroscience. So the first empirical finding of our research is that some people really like this. <laughs> you know, if you look on the leaderboard, there are people who have so many points, and we, can, we, we monitor how long they play. There's some people who play this a lot. <laughs> and why is that? Well, I have to tell you the story that uh, I knew we kind of had something because one night uh, I asked my girlfriend a question, and she said, don't bother me, I'm finishing a neuron. So I could see there was some kind of, of, of uh, hold that this game has. And I think part of it is that this is, this is kind of mesmerizing. And there's something meditative about it. She kind of liked it after a stressful day. She, she would calm down, and uh, she would look at these images. And there's also a puzzle-solving aspect. When you find a missing branch, uh, it's, really, it's pleasurable. It's like figuring out the, the word in the crossword puzzle. So there's, there's that aspect, too. There's the competition. She happens to be intensely competitive. So uh, there was a, a space of several weeks when she was engaged in an epic battle with a guy named Jose. And every night, she would do enough tasks to get to be number one. And then she would collapse in it with exhaustion, triumphant. But every morning, she would wake up, and Jose was number one. <laughs> and that's when I discovered she's really kind of competitive because it really made her mad. And, and she said, honey, can't you do something about this Jose guy? <laughs> this is putting some stress on my relationship. And uh, I said, oh, well, I don't know if I can really do that. That wouldn't be fair. And uh, she said, but it's your website. I said, no, it's a citizen science community. So we're still together, <laughs> thankfully. And uh, I didn't know who this Jose was. So I... Uh, my lab, we, uh, we made a forum, discussion forum. We wanted to figure, learn who these people were. And instantly, this forum was very active. People started posting things, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And um, of course, Jose is one of the first people to post. <laughs> and we discover you know, why. So it turns out Jose lives in Spain. So he wakes up six hours or five hours before. And that's why he's always number one uh, when she wakes up. And he said, hello, fellow iWirer. They call themselves iWirers, right, the community. And then he said, um, he said down here, my seven-year-old daughter likes playing too. 
It's a family activity. <laughs> I, I never realized that kids could, would play this, but in fact, I've observed it, and 10-year-old kids learn faster than their parents, generally. And then uh, he said, and look, we found this piece of a neuron, and it looks like an ice skater. <laughs> and then another user ran with that and said, He wrote, I'll give you the finger, but I've been told that in England uh, it's fingers, but I don't know, uh, <laughs> I don't know the cross-cultural kind of translation here, but, uh, so yeah, so you can see that, you know, I never knew neuroscience could be so fun. Uh, and so this was something inspiring to me, because when we made the game, we, we wanted something, we wanted people to do something, and they did what we wanted them to do. But here was people surprising us with things we never expected. And it became obvious we should make an area of the website where it's a gallery and people post pictures, they caption them, vote them up or down. We should do that, clearly. Of course, we haven't had enough time to do it because something's always breaking and uh, you know, we're always fighting fires, but that's what we should do. And, and we didn't, but our users did it anyway in the forum. Right, so here's one. Here's one. The homunculus. And I like this one. <laughs> and we've had more serious contributions too. So uh, for several weeks, I was complaining to my, my programmers. I said, you know, the performance of this website is bad. Often it seems to clog. The images don't, don't load properly. And they said, well, actually, your internet connection at home doesn't, uh, it has long latency packets. It has dropped packets. You have a bad internet connection. We can't do anything about that. And so one morning I found this post and there was this guy, W. Shaw, and he notices the same problem. I was having some long load time problems, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, iWire isn't making use of HTTP pipelining at all. I don't know what that means, <laughs> but he's diagnosing the problem, right? I know that much. And then he says at the end, I'd also look into using a different proxy solution. Use the keep alive header. Just my two cents. So I, I stormed into the programmer's room and said, look at this. And they said, okay. And then they, made, they changed three lines of code, problem solved. They looked really embarrassed, but, but they were also happy. I mean, we were kind of elated that, that somebody who was part of this community could solve the problem for us that we couldn't solve. So I've been convinced by that, that uh, this is a powerful idea. That, and in fact, I would argue that this is what we need to succeed. So I'm, I'm on the road all the time now. I'm trying to find partners. I don't think that neuroscientists alone are up to the task of mapping connectomes. We need help. All kinds of help, people who play the game. We need game designers, people who would never think about neuroscience, but who could contribute to this. We need game designers. We need educators. Plenty, plenty of people have come to me and say, I want my kids to play this in school. I want to teach a class with this. We need educators to build educational content around this. We need community organizers. We need all kinds of people. We, need, we have a wiki also. We have a wiki. So here's a wiki which contains information about the retina, and we want to turn this, in, we've seeded it, and we want to turn this into a, a resource where, where our user community educates each other, 
and the world about the retina and what we're going to discover about the retina. And all this has to happen. We have to create the framework, uh, but we need help. There's no way that one lab can do this. We have to mobilize the world. And so I would argue that this is the first scientific revolution that will require a social revolution that will make use of the modern technologies that we have for organizing ourselves to accomplish things that we never thought possible before. How can we use the internet to make us smarter instead of stupider? All right, so that's uh, um, my call. If any of you can help, if any of you know anybody who can help, please tell them to contact us and be part of this team because I think it's an exciting adventure. And I'm just going to wrap up this part, uh, this formal presentation by, by reading from my book. I've said a lot of serious things, and this book explains a lot of real neuroscience, but it also has some parts that are fun, and so I'll read a fun part. This is chapter three, No Neuron is an Island. The neuron is my second favorite cell. It's a close runner-up to my favorite, sperm. If you have never looked into a microscope to see sperm swimming furiously, grab your favorite biologist by the lapels of his or her lab coat and demand a viewing session. Gasp at the urgency of their mission. Mourn their imminent death. Marvel at life stripped down to its bare essentials. Like a traveler with a single small suitcase, a sperm carries little. There are mitochondria, the microscopic power plants that drive the whipping motion of its tail. And there is DNA, the molecule that carries the blueprint of life. No hair, no eyes, no heart, no brain. Nothing extraneous comes along for the ride. Just the information, please, written in DNA with the four-letter alphabet, A, C, G, and T. Now, if your biologist friend is still game, ask to see a neuron. Sperm impressed by their unceasing motion, but a neuron takes your breath away with its beautiful shape. Like a typical cell, a neuron has a boring round part, which contains its nucleus and DNA. But this cell body is only a small part of the picture. From it extend long, narrow branches that fork over and over, much like a tree. Sperm are sleek and minimalist but neurons are Baroque and ornate. Even in a crowd of 100 million, a sperm swims alone. At most, one will achieve its mission of fertilizing the egg. The competition is winner take all. When one sperm succeeds, the egg changes its surface, creating a barrier that prevents other sperm from entering. Whether brought together by a happy marriage or a sordid affair, sperm and egg form a monogamous couple. No neuron is an island. Neurons are polyamorous. Each embraces thousands of others as their branches entangle like spaghetti. Neurons form a tightly interconnected network. All right, well. Thank you. many thanks. It was a really fascinating lecture and um, for those of you who haven't read the book, 
I can promise you that it was added a richly interwoven aspects into the book. And for those of you who have read the book, you all have learnt lots of new things too, as I did. Thank you, it was really, really excellent. And uh, I'm sure you all are now wanting to ask questions, and here's your chance. Um, just a few things first. There are microphones, roving microphones, so please wait for the microphone to come to you before you start. And try to keep your question brief so that we can democratically allow as many people as possible to ask the questions. And try to be sure to ask a question and not to give yet another lecture um, or make a statement or whatever. And please tell us your name and where you're from, unless you really, really don't want to, in which case that's up to you. Uh, so we're going to end by um, 8 o'clock, after which Sebastian will be selling copies of the book outside and signing them. Sorry, he'll be signing them. Others will be selling them. You'll be Get buying. Get your books here. You'll be buying. <laughs> <laughs> Others will be selling and he'll be signing. So we can start now with the questions. Who would like to start? Yes, over that grey shirt up there. And next question as well. I'll take them so the, so the uh, microphone can get to you. There's one over there at the back, blue shirt, blue sweater. And then the third one will be over here, the pale, pale blue shirt. Okay? Thank you. Right, first question. Uh, then. Hello. Um, uh, my name's Paul. Uh, I'm a software developer at the Nature Publishing Group. Um, so it's going to be a bit more technical, but I was very interested in you saw the machine learning stuff. Are you actually feeding back the users sort of enter data back into the machine learning so it's actually getting better and more intelligent all the time? Is that something that you're actually currently doing? Or? That's the idea, indeed, that the combination of people and machines is important because people take the inaccurate output of the machines and produce accurate scientific results. But at the same time, the people are training the computer to be smarter. And so the whole system will go faster and faster. And we need to get on that kind of escalator of continuous improvement if we want to get to uh, solve the greatest questions in neuroscience. And then this, there was another question here. Good. Hey, uh, my name is Saurabh. Look, um, in the beginning of the lecture, you said that uh, the way neurons are formed, it depends somewhat to the genes of the person. Do you think you can, is it possible to train the neurons or perhaps change their shape so that a person can make better decisions or you know, improve or something along those lines? Could you repeat the question, please? I, I didn't quite get the main verb, I think. Yes, so the question, <laughs> so, so the, the first statement was that because genes control the wiring of the brain by controlling the shapes that, the, that these trees make, right? Uh, could it be that we could have more effective strategies for changing people or healing them by changing the shapes of neurons? And possibly, but it's not just the shape of a neuron that uh, makes a difference. So even with the same shapes of neurons, the connectivity, there's still some freedom to have many different patterns of connections inside that. And it's probably those minor changes uh, that are more important for um, uh, improving normal function. There might be some, uh, it is true that there, there could be some 
mental disorders, we don't know this, but there could be some mental disorders in which the shapes of neurons are seriously wrong, seriously malformed, and that's what causes them. Those might be somehow related to the question you're asking, but we have to find them. Thank you. Uh, just before you start, um, just get a few more questions. Okay, right there, good. Good crowd over there. Perhaps some others can emulate them. Right. Um, so who's taking it after this? Uh, two there. Okay, fine. Right. Um, hi, my name's Matt. Um, I was wondering, because of the human factor, how do you know that um, the mapping is actually correct? Well, in the end, uh, all, we can do, all we can use is some kind of uh, consensus, right? So in any kind of uh, human endeavor, we have ways of aggregating the wisdom of the crowds, let's say, to try to extract the truth. And so the research in my lab these days uh, is often about comparing people on the web who are collectively working together with, say, two or three experts who are on site at my laboratory. And we're still working out when is the crowd better than the experts and when is it worse. And it depends. Are there any particular patterns that emerge on that? Well, sometimes the non-experts detect branches that the experts missed. Because, there's, because? because let's say there's five or ten of them and uh, mm -hmm. we only have one or two experts who are mm -hmm. working there, right? But sometimes the, the, uh, the crowd is wrong in the sense that majority rule is wrong. And, but is there any pattern to when they tend to be wrong? Uh, they tend to be wrong on the hard cases. where So, so there's a lot of, well, no. So, so what I would say hard meaning uh, it's an intentional thing. So um, let's say there's a branch that's really difficult to detect. Mm -hmm. if, if somebody shows it to you, then uh, you'll say, oh, yeah, it's there. But because you're moving through these images, you just miss it. So in those hard cases, the, the, uh, the crowd can be wrong. And so we're trying to develop other, other modes besides just voting. Say verification. One person <coughs> verifies the work of another person. So it's a s sort of social mechanism design problem. Mm, nice. There were two over here. And then after that, this person in the gray shirt in front of those two um, hi, I'm Eleanor. I'm a neuroscience student. And I was wondering, so once you achieve the connectome for one brain, what sort of general things do you want to try to pull out of that? And how will you cope with the huge variability between individual brains? Well, I'd like to emphasize that we don't have to map the connectome of an entire brain to make progress. So even doing a small piece will tell us a lot because other studies like MRI can tell us where precisely to look in the brain if we want to study a, a certain function and then we can apply the microscope just to that part. Now you're asking uh, uh, what would we like to learn? Well in the retina we're trying to understand perception and it turns out that uh, you know the wiring is very important for perception according to all the mathematical theories we have of, of neural networks that have developed over the last 50 years, but it's been hard to test those kinds of theories. We can, we're starting to do that now. Now the second question deals with variability. So some people say, well, it's futile to map out connections because they will vary so much from individual to individual. And, you know, if you map, if you have a map of Paris, it's not helpful when you're in Rome. So it's futile to map one person. But I would argue that that is uh, 
Actually, variability is what I'm interested in fundamentally. I want to understand memory. And your memories and my memories are not the same. right? So it, it better be the case if connectomes are the repositories of memories that our connectomes are different. So what can we do but try to find the rules that are governing the encoding of memories? And the only way we can do that, I think, the direct, most direct way to do that is to try to read memories from connectomes. And in my book, I, I, I propose an experiment uh, where we might imagine reading out the memory of, of a bird's song. I don't want to go into exactly how we do that, uh, but uh, there's been a lot of progress in the neuroscience of birdsong, and this has positioned us, I think, that, and to go test a hypothesis uh, in a particular area of the bird brain that uh, memories are encoded in a particular way. But that still is, you're doing that as a species general phenomenon, not, not as individual differences within the species at that point. I think you were asking about individual, how do you go from individual differences to the general? What, what the relationship between those two things are mm -hmm. and sort of, I mean, so if you're looking at a, a complicated memory in a human, then to try to look for any commonalities, you need a huge sample, you'd need to do the whole connectome of even a small area for those. So it's, it's a massive task. And I guess things like the bird song, and I think there's been some stuff with motor learning, trying to get to very small areas to look for changes in dendrites and stuff, which I guess would be relevant too. Well, in the birdsong case, we want to use the connectome to predict the sequence in which the neurons is activated uh, during the song. And that sequence is going to be different from bird to bird, but we would hope to be able to predict that sequence for each bird from its own connectome. Hmm. Next question. Thank you. My name is Ramesh. Um, I'm no... Uh, not very familiar with the neuroscience, but I am quite excited and quite uh, fascinated by, uh, by this idea. Um, I would I'm going to ask you if, if you can, what you call, if you are in a position of applying, applying this, uh, this knowledge, to say a question of what is intelligence? Uh, what is thought? Uh, what is curiosity? Any one of those, if you could say something about uh, from, your point, from the point of view of correct Tom. I should be grateful. Thank you. Could you just repeat it? So I, th I think you were asking about the questions, what is intelligence? Yes. What is curiosity? Uh, what is creativity, maybe? Yeah. Uh, what, are, uh, what are the neural bases of these okay. phenomena? Just take creativity. Just creativity in terms of character. That would be great. Thank you. Okay. Good. Yeah? <laughs> so I should confess that we are really grappling with much more basic questions, much easier questions. <laughs> but in the end, there is something, uh, so, so there is something, and I'm going to venture outside the bounds of my research, but there's something very uh, basic about, or very similar about different forms of creativity, and indeed at all levels of explanation from evolution. Yes. So evolution is the great creator, right? It creates new species. And uh, our own creative process creates new ideas. And what do we need for that? We need a source of some kind of variation of randomness, uh, in which in, in the case of evolution is genetic mutation and recombination. And we need a source of selection. And so when we're creative with our ideas, we generate all kinds of crazy ideas, kind of random maybe, almost random. And then we kill them. We kill off the bad ones and the good ones survive. So in some sense, 
the mechanisms of creation share uh, common mechanisms uh, from evolution and the genes to, to intelligence. But it's when you get into the details that it's hard, right? So in the case of, uh, in my book, I talk about neural Darwinism. And Darwinian ideas in the brain uh, are, you know, there's a theory that, that new connections are created in the brain randomly. And that, in some sense, could be a source of ideas. And the connections that are not effective get eliminated. Very little evidence for this. But through connectomics, we could test it. There's a po and I talk about that in the book. Uh, uh, there. Could you pass I, the microphone along, please? I think and I'm coming next. Oh, sorry. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, you're after that. And you're, you're next. And this one next. Okay, these two. Good. Hello. Sorry. Um, Yes, I have two questions. Um, first, um, connected to the previous question, um, the variability of across individuals. Uh, the wiring map we saw before, uh, that was done across different individuals or was around you know, 12 years studying the same individual? Um, if it's the first. So indeed, in simple worms, so the question is how much does, does the connectome vary? Yes. So certain, if you look at this worm, uh, only, only a little bit of comparison has been done, but enough to estimate the amount of variability. There is some. How much is 10%? Um... Well, the thing is that at least the neurons, every worm has the same neurons, and every neuron in that worm is, has a name. Right? So that's for a fact. This, yeah, they, they, occur the the, they occur in the same location, they have the same shape. Right. But the connections between the neurons can vary a little bit. But between your brain and my brain, we can't make a one-to-one -one correspondence between neurons, right? So, so uh, and our brains don't have the same number. Of, I'm not going to talk about who has more neurons. <laughs> but we don't even have the same number of neurons. And in fact, normal human brain size varies by a factor of two. Between, you know, normal intelligence between... Uh, um, you know, you know I, I give the example in my book of Anatole France and Ivan Turgenev, 1,000 grams, 2,000 grams. But Anatole France with 1,000 grams got the Nobel Prize in Literature. Turgenev didn't. Okay? And so this goes now back to the, the question of variability. So often, what you'll hear in the, liter in, in, in the press, scientists discover difference between um, autistic people and autistic brains and typical brains. Right? But in turn, it turns out there's a lot of variability. So it's true that if I take 100 kids with autism and 100 typical kids, the autistic brains on average are bigger than those of the typical kids. But if I took every kid with a big head and said they're autistic, that'd be woefully inaccurate. It's also true that people with bigger brains on average have higher IQs. But you can't predict a, a, an individual person's IQ from their brain size. So the, the reports you hear about in the literature are, are uh, in the news are always the statistical averages. And so my argument is that, okay, so what, do you, what, how, what, what kind of uh, conclusion can you draw from that? So some of my colleagues say, that's why studying brain structure is useless. It doesn't tell us anything. 
But I would argue the opposite. It's surprising that the size of the brain is weakly correlated with intelligence. What we need to do is have more refined measures of structure. If we do that, then we'll really discover something that is truly predictive of intelligence or mental illness and so on. And that's why I want to map out connectomes. So people say, oh, you'll have more information, therefore more variability. In fact, I think when we look at connectomes, we'll see something clear, a clear difference, not something statistical. What about, I don't know for that for sure, but that's what I'm guessing. What about density? I mean, if you have more neurons in, like, in the denser area, is it like a smarter brain or is any... That's the kind of, that's the kind of uh, explanation we've had for 100 years and we've never been able to go beyond it. The phrenologists back in the 19th century said the way that we get smarter, it's like working out. If you do a mental workout, your brain gets bigger. And amazingly, MRI researchers, have, MRI researchers have confirmed that. On average, there's some reports like this, that if you study for medical school or learn to juggle, a little part of your cortex gets thicker. There's some reports like that, but it's statistical. It's not the real cause of learning. So I would argue we need more refined measures of structure. Size is just crude. And so the, the, sec the first section of my book is called Does Size Matter? Um, sorry, my second question is... <laughs> I didn't know you had one, but go on. <laughs> um, um, have you studied the disruption of connectums? Like uh, how much they can persist of, uh, you know, the brain has this plasticity in there. Have you studied how much they can resist? Or you know, thing like when you put some... Um... Well, in these methods, we're concerned with finding snapshots. So electron microscopy is applied to dead brains. We can't follow a connectome over time. So we're looking at a really, um, uh, a really high resolution snapshot. But sometimes you can tell more about change from snapshots than from a really blurry movie. Okay, um, my name's Julian. I work for King's College London Institute of Psychiatry. I'm not a psychiatrist, so don't worry. My question is, you back, we told you backgrounds in theoretical physics originally. Are there any techniques from that domain dealing with complex objects, albeit on a microscopic scale like atoms, electrons and such like, that could help deal with the complexity in this field? I don't know, I'm thinking of things like statistical physics and things that sort of average and take the minute detail and draw some trends and do you think those would help and I suspect you are doing things like that. I just wondered in detail what subjects, what topics from physics translate into this. Okay, so this is the question of can we use what we know about physics to inform our research in neuroscience? And indeed, Helena referred to this question of, I mean, she talked about the Astronomer Royale, right? So, and talking about my own, my own background, because I came from, from theoretical physics. And there, there are some conceptual, so, so the, this is precisely what drew me and other physicists into neuroscience, because of the feeling that maybe there was something theoretical that we could figure out. And I guess my motivations were that, this is a personal story now, so I was first interested in the physics of elementary particles when I first started university studies. But I began to realize that these, couldn't, these theories couldn't be tested by 
experiments. So I, I grew a little disenchanted. And not only that, even if you figure out what the elementary particles are, that doesn't tell you, that doesn't really give you all the answers. And so the famous example, right, is graphite and diamond. So we all know that a diamond glitters and it's, it's very hard and it's an insulator and graphite is uh, dark and very soft and it's a conductor of electricity. And yet, they're both made of exactly the same elements. They're made of carbon atoms. They're just arranged in a different way. And so my joke is, right, let's say I'm a physicist and I want to propose marriage and I give my beloved a, a graphite ring. And I say, well, honey, it's, it's the same atoms, right? She may not be delighted by that because the macroscopic properties are different. I mean, unless she's another physicist, then it's okay. <laughs> a match made in heaven. So the point is that the macroscopic properties can be very different uh, because of the organization of the atoms, even though the building blocks are the same. And so the problems in biology are, well, how do we get, take dead molecules, dead atoms, and make a living thing? And the challenge of neuroscience is how do we take dumb neurons and make an intelligent brain? So this is, these are called emergent properties, and that's what drew theoretical physicists into uh, biology and neuroscience. Can we, uh, can we study more interesting emergent properties than insulating versus conducting? Intelligence, emotions, those seem more interesting. And it turns out that some of those concepts from theoretical physics are a little bit useful, but a lot of them are not. Because biological systems are much more complex Right? Every atom in a gas is the same as every other atom. But we can't say that's, that about neurons. Every neuron is unique. They're all different. You know, I love to, we, love, we love to tell people that, right? Every person is unique. It's a kind of platitude. Every neuron is unique. Any physiologist who studies the brain will tell you they're all a little bit different from each other. And those differences are important. I might have one neuron that responds to pictures of Jennifer Aniston. I talked about this in the book. And the neuron next to it might respond to pictures of Halle Berry. Now you guys may say, ah, it's basically the same thing. But those differences are what allow us to perceive the difference between those two actresses. So physics, although physicists are really smart people, that doesn't mean that they can just walk into neuroscience and solve it. I think the next one's yep. right over here. Yep. Yes. Hello, Sebastian. Uh, my name is William, and I'm an econ economics student from LSE. So this question is not any hardcore technical question. Um, as everybody knows, there is a huge difference bet between a human brain and any other animal's brain because we, we act uniquely and we are kind of unique in terms of our intelligence or emotions or the sophistication and kind of the, the advancement of, tech of intelligence all the time. So. Uh, but I'm, I'm just wondering whether you can offer or have there any, being, any, any kind of explanations offered on that basis to explain the difference um, between the, the human brain and other kind of species brain based on the um, either neuron or kinetic-comes uh, theory because I guess the, the number of neurons probably wouldn't explain it all and um, what about the, the, the kind of patterns of kinetic-comes or the dynamics of the, of the uh, neurons interactions with each other. What, what kind of um, uh, explanations would you think of? Thank you. Yes, so are humans truly unique? If we're unique, then our brains should be 
qualitatively different from those of other animals. And I addressed this in a chapter that was cut from my book. <laughs> and it's actually a little bit uh, demoralizing when you learn the history of it. So if you look at the difference between a monkey brain and a human brain, there is no area in the human brain that's missing in the monkey brain, as far as I could tell from the literature. So there was a man named Brodman back in the early part of the 20th century who said the Broca's area, which controls uh, speech in humans, is missing in the monkey brain. But more recent studies have shown actually the uh, monkey, brain, monkey brain contains Broca's area and it's involved in monkey vocalizations. So if that's the case, then the differences between the human and monkey brain seem just quantitative just more of that area than the other. Same with neuronal cell types. And so scientists have struggled to find a truly qualitative difference that could explain the, um, the marked kinds of uh, differences we see in the behaviors of uh, these two species, but we haven't seen it. And so I think that we just need to have more refined measures of structure. I think that we need to have a little piece of monkey cortex and a piece of human cortex and see whether they're really different. It's going to be a really powerful way of studying evolution. Um, I think you were next, weren't you? And then you'll be next, and there was somebody over here? Yes. Can you see there, and somebody behind? Okay. Hi, I'm Anna, and I work at a digital agency here in London. And I'm really interested in finding out your opinion, because you mentioned memory in the beginning a lot, what your opinion is on the research of diseases like Alzheimer and dementia, and, and if you're interested in, in applying your your findings to diseases like that just because I read so much about it and there seems to be very little known to to it and if you could reverse memory and I'm, I think that's really interesting I'd just like to know your opinion on that thank you great question so so disorders of memory now in the case of Alzheimer's we know we've known for a long time Alzheimer discovered this neurons are degenerating and they're dying and so the challenge there is to prevent those processes from happening. And I think that the connectome is not really so relevant for degeneration. But uh, these other kinds of, there's plenty of other memory disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, ad addiction. Addiction, after all, is kind of a, a memory of a habit that you can't shake, an inability to forget. Uh, if we really understood what was happening in the brain when we store a memory, I believe that basic science knowledge would, would actually have implications for these practical questions of disorders of memory. But our ignorance is such that we don't even know what's changing in the brain when we learn something. So it's hard to address those problems. Now, the kinds of, of disorders that, uh, that connectomics will be important for, a lot of them are those for which no pathology has ever been identified. No clear and consistent pathology. So, a hundred years ago, the first people who studied schizophrenia looked through brain after brain after brain, trying to find neurons that were de degenerating and dying. Alzheimer actually studied schizophrenia and gave up in disgust and moved to Alzheimer's disease and made a good discovery. But he failed to find degenerating neurons in the brains of schizophrenics. And so that's led to a hypothesis, which is the neurons are healthy, they're perfectly healthy, but they are connected in an abnormal fashion. That people are wired differently. You've heard that before, right? But actually, that's just a speculation. We've never had the technology to see the wires clearly. 
And you have to look very carefully, right? Imagine the back of your stereo. If I just switched two wires and you took a casual glance at that, you wouldn't see what was wrong. You have to actually trace the paths of the wires. So there are these hypothetical miswirings for schizophrenia, autism, and so on. Maybe connectomics will be able to reveal them. No one can predict whether that's going to happen, but that's, that's the kind of dream. And our next citizen science projects are not going to be about the, about the retina. They're going to be about memory, and they're going to be uh, mobilizing the world to search for miswirings. Who's next? Do you not remember who, who, who was next? I think over here, yes. Uh, you're, not, you're not slated yet, are you? So this, I think you might be the last one after those others. Uh, hello, my name's John Norton. I'm a bank manager, so you can boo hiss now. You're a what? Uh, I'm a bank manager, so you can Great. boo now. Thanks for coming. My question is sort of related to the, to the learning uh, question. Uh, I've been told that up to 70-80% of your brain function is subconscious and your conscious is only a small part and you're, bur you're born with certain functions that operate your heart and your lungs, etc. Will Connectome help to explain when you learn to walk how that's then committed to your subconscious and then you start on something new? Do you think that will, your studies will help that learning process? Well, maybe even more than 70 to 80% is subconscious, almost. I think it's really the other way around. Mm -hmm. The consciousness is the exception. And so I think with connectomics, we could shed a lot of light on learning, but I'm not sure how much light we're going to shed on consciousness. That's a hard problem. And so I distinguish between, in my book, I distinguish between two notions of self, right? We have one, one idea of self which changes all the time. I'm angry, I'm sad, I go to sleep, I wake up. That's the conscious self. And that's the one that's most closely associated with neural activity. But there's the other self, which uh, changes slowly, with difficulty. You might want to change. You want to st stop smoking. Uh, you might want your spouse to change. Right? There's a lot of books in the self-help section. But, but people have difficulty changing. And that's the self that's probably encoded in your connectome, which changes more slowly. And so there's a lot of books in neuroscience, in neuroscience on consciousness, uh, on the conscious self. This book is really trying to discuss the other self, which is more neglected, the self that changes slowly. Who's next? Right, um, hi. Uh, I'm, I'm studying organizational behavior in LSE, and I'm um, mapping social networks. And we usually look at uh, centrality and brokerage, that kind of uh, properties to find solutions to the problems. So I was wondering if in, the, in a connectome, is it, is, is it still uh, very important that a neuron is central or uh, to find a solution to a disease or something, or is it something else? Can you repeat the question? So people who work in the, the area of social networks or network science, I guess, have dwelled upon certain quantities, mathematical quantities in networks like centrality and diameter uh, and so on and so forth. So, you know, diameter is like six degrees of separation. How many in a network, how many steps do we have to get from one person to another? And supposedly in the world, six steps are enough to get to anybody. And uh, it starts to become relevant because of services like LinkedIn and so on, right? 
So uh, are these concepts important for neuroscience? And I would say those concepts are most important for networks that are primarily about communication. Like let's say I'm an epidemiologist. I want to figure out how long it's going to take a disease to spread from here to there. Well, I needed to know how many links. Like in the case of, of certain diseases, who slept with whom, right? And I kid you not, there's, there's uh, pa academic papers on, this kind of, uh, on these kinds of measurements, right? So, but the brain, although people think of it sometimes as, for an analogy as a communication network, it's not just a communication network. It's also doing computation. So every node in that network is doing a complicated, not that complicated, but it's still doing, making a decision. It's not just transmitting information. And so that's why I believe that these network concepts that are mostly studied are not that relevant, although a lot of my colleagues study them. So don't tell them I said that. Right. And you were the last. There was some before. You were, you were next, weren't you? Yep. Can I have two questions, though? If they're, if they're quick, and I okay. think you'll probably the first have to one, be the last person. The first yeah, one's yes. a bit more shop talk. The, the second one's a bit more blue skies. The first one is, so far in this in the early stages of this work, have you found anything surprising uh, regarding connections between the glial cells as opposed to just neurons? Have you looked at, looked at that at uh, all? I, I, I must admit that we, that we ignore the glial cells and oh, no, okay. they, I wanted to know us, you they give us them. a lot of trouble. They're, yeah. they're a real annoyance for us, but I know that some people really like to study them. Do you think they're going to be important in the end before you've answered what the questions you want to answer? Well, they're certainly important in diseases mm. and in cancer and so on. I'm not, I'm not sure how important they are for the problems we've discussed so far. Okay. Can you explain briefly why they're annoying? Oh, and I should explain what glia are. Yes, quite. Mm. So, so your brain contains many different kinds of cells, but the most, uh, the most basic distinction is between neurons and glia. Glia are kind of the supporting cells. There's a lot of them, and there's many different kinds. They uh, provide metabolic support. They come to the rescue when there's a brain injury, and so on and so forth. So some people think that the secret to intelligence is found in glia, and that we've been all barking up the wrong tree. Uh, I'm a little bit uh, more conservative than that. Yeah, I wasn't into that. Uh, my second question is, um, in the far and distant future, when all this work is finished, and you've produced the connectome of the entire human brain. What do you think, and this is just, I'm just asking you to do it, make a wild guess, what do you think would be the minimum number of d connection differences which would distinguish two similar but different memories? Do you get what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> do you think it would be millions or thousands or tens? I thought he was going to ask a, a, a much more provocative question about the future. Like, you know, if you had an entire human connectome, could you upload yourself to a computer and live forever as a computer simulation? <laughs> so that's the way I thought it was going, but instead you asked me this really technical question. <laughs> so I'm not going to answer that one, because mm -hmm. it's getting late. I think everyone is probably getting tired, so. <laughs> that's a very good reason for not answering. So just quickly, your, your question. <laughs> Thank you, Professor. Very provocative talk. Uh, I guess it's about 15 years ago that the race to um, sequence the genome was declared tie with the U.S. and the U.K. team, have a gracious, nice tie. Um, but that probably involved hundreds, if not thousands, of bioscientists 
working with on these two various uh, racing projects, you know, for the glory of being the first. I would think that this project would be similarly exciting to neuroscientists and biologists because it is, in some ways, um, a similar kind of uh, task. Now, is it because, in some ways, unlike the sequencing of genome, this thing is kind of, there's kind of arbitrariness to it. No, because, we're just, because the brain change. It's the not, says in the 1990s is not a good analogy for, for the, the connectome. So we're more like in the 1970s of DNA sequencing, where it's just getting started, doing really, it's really painfully difficult. Uh, and we're trying to get going, and people don't believe necessarily that it's going to happen. So 1990s is not the right analogy yet. Yeah, uh, we're not uh, there. I uh, wish we were there. Uh, so, my, my so the question is, why focus on just mapping out the connections, although that's an incredibly daunting task? Because as you mentioned, each cell, each node, is making all kinds of complicated decisions. So just getting the connections from A to B to 100 billion doesn't even get, begin to tell you what each of the nodes, the A and B. Are well, so I told you about the three kinds of observations, genes or molecules, and connections and activity. And actually, in our current research, we try to combine all three. So you can image the activity of neurons first with light microscopy, and then image the, the network with electron microscopy and find the connections. So yes, you're right. It's important to combine these different measurements, definitely. I'm afraid that really has to be the last question. So there are just a couple of things. And the first one. Could I, could I just yes, do. Oh, please. what's the first one? What's the first one? No, the first one is to thank everybody oh. for the excellent questions and I for do, coming along. I do want to do one last please. reading. Oh, that would be wonderful. I'll we'd, do. We'd all very much. Just like for fun. That. Yes. And uh, I can actually do this one, I think, without looking at the book. Oh, show us. <laughs> okay. No road, no trail can penetrate this forest. The long and delicate branches of its trees lie everywhere, choking space with their exuberant growth. No sunbeam can fly a path tortuous enough to navigate the narrow spaces between these entangled branches. All the trees of this dark forest grew from 100 billion seeds planted together. And all in one day, every tree is destined to die. I would like to say this forest is majestic. But perhaps it's comic or even tragic. The forest is all of these things, indeed, Sometimes I think it is everything, every novel and every symphony, every cruel murder and every act of mercy, every love affair and every quarrel, every joke and every sorrow. All these things come from the forest. If you still have not guessed where the forest is located, you might be surprised to hear that it fits in a container less than one foot in diameter, and that there are seven billion on this earth. You happen to be the caretaker of one 
the forest that lives inside your skull. The trees of which I speak are those special cells called neurons. And the mission of neuroscience is to explore their enchanted branches, to tame the jungle of the mind. Thank you all for coming. Good night. marvellous thing from the forest which was events like this <laughs> that come out of it and books like that and uh, we'd like to thank you really very much terrific event thanks all to everybody for coming